Good morning. Our second reading is from Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, Happy New Year. And I wonder if you have any ambitions for 2021. Uh, Maybe it's to get fit, even to do the Great North Run. Maybe it's to get through exams. Maybe it's finally to redecorate that room in your house. Maybe uh, if you have young kids, it's just to survive, uh, just to get back to an unbroken night's sleep. And for all of us, there is the ambition to get back to life as normal. Well, a Christian book I read soon after I came to faith has the provocative title, Give Up Your Small Ambitions. The equivalent today, I guess, would be John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, which I recommend. And the message of Give Up Your Small Ambitions was this. Don't let lesser ambitions like the ones I've just mentioned drive your life. Instead, let it be driven by the overriding ambition to make Jesus known to those who still need to hear about him. And in the last of this series on the incarnation, how God became human in Jesus, the Apostle Paul says much the same, because in Titus 2, he says, if we see the purpose of the incarnation clearly, we'll then see all our ambitions more clearly and align them better with God's purposes. So this morning is about living in line with the incarnation. And before we go any further, let's pray. Father, at the start of this year, please help us to see our world and live our lives in line with your purpose in the Incarnation. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Titus Titus 2 verse 11. And the first thing here is that the Incarnation makes us look differently at the world. Listen to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, by which Paul meant it's appeared here uh, on this earth in human history in the person of Jesus. And he wasn't just thinking of the baby in Bethlehem. He was thinking of everything from Jesus' virgin birth through his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead and his return to heaven. Everything that we read about in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And Paul says what that all adds up to is the ultimate appearing of the grace of God. That is his undeserved love. Now, at one level, we see God's undeserved love all around us right now. People might think the pandemic disproves that. But actually, a human race that has turned its back on God doesn't deserve any length of life at all. That's why John Calvin, writing about the Genesis flood, said, the remarkable thing is is not that there was a flood, but that there has only been one. So what's remarkable isn't people dying 
or dying earlier than average. It's people having any length of health and life at all because we do not deserve that as a race, having told the giver of life that we don't want him to be God in our lives. So in fact, every good thing we have in creation shows God's undeserved love, his common grace, as it's called. But Paul is talking about something different in verse 11. He's talking about saving grace, which is God's undeserved love in acting to forgive us for living as if God was not God. Verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Which shows that what Paul had in mind especially was Jesus' death on the cross, because that was the supreme reason for the incarnation. As the Lord Jesus said about himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Back in 1998, a Canadian family spent Christmas without the husband and father because he gave himself as a ransom. He was Norbert Reinhardt. He owned a mining company in Colombia and one of his workers had been taken hostage by rebels. And with negotiations failing, Reinhardt volunteered to take his worker's place. That was in October. Reinhardt wasn't released until early the following January when one Canadian journalist wrote this. Reinhardt said, I just tried to fulfil my responsibility, it was nothing special, but I doubt that his wife and children felt it was nothing special when Christmas came and went with no word of him. And I hope as they celebrate his return that they will realise he is one in a million who would give up his freedom and his life if necessary for one unknown worker. So Reinhardt gave his life as a ransom for one thankfully only risking it, whereas God the Son came to give his life as a ransom for many and not just risking it but deliberately giving it up for us on the cross to take our judgment in our place so that we could be saved from it and forgiven. So as we look at the cross and we hear Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see what we deserve for our sin. Because if we say to God, I don't want you to be God in my life, the judgment is to be given what we want, both now and ultimately when we die for good. That's where we would all stand with God without the incarnation and cross. And if this morning we stand forgiven and accepted by him, it is only because of the incarnation and cross. And that makes us look very differently at the world, at the people around us, because many of them feel no need of salvation. Some are completely secular and seem happy, successful, even enviable without God. Some have their own beliefs about God and assume they're good enough to be accepted in the end. And some are religious, whether Jew, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Shintoist, you name it. And the world's assumption is that, well, they've already got a faith, so they must be okay. But verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that means God the Son came from heaven to humanness, to the cross, because all people without exception needed it. And because that is the only way anyone will ever be put right with God. 
And if we're unsure or uncomfortable about that, we need to ask ourselves, do we really think if there was any other way of salvation, like us trying to be good or us having our own religion, that God would have sent his son to the cross? So we need to look at the world in the light of the incarnation and cross and see that what it thinks about its own goodness is wrong, what it thinks about its own religions is wrong, what it thinks are its greatest needs is wrong. So that's the first thing. The incarnation makes us look differently at the world. The second thing is the incarnation makes us live differently from the world. Let's read from verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So we've seen that the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus is his undeserved love which acted at the cross to forgive us. But Paul says if we trust in Jesus, his grace doesn't just forgive us, it trains us, it it motivates us like a personal coach in our lives to live differently from the way we did and from the way the world around still does. So how does that work? Well, I said earlier that as we look at the cross, we see what our sins deserve. And another way of putting that is that we see what God thinks of our sin. We see what God thinks of the way the world lives, which in a word is ungodliness. And ungodliness simply means living as if God was not God and as if all our desires uh, were perfectly legitimate and good to act on. So ungodliness is what makes people feel that they're free, that they're fulfilling themselves, that they're having fun, and what makes Christians at least sometimes feel they might be missing out. But look at the cross, and you see what God thinks of ungodliness, and what it cost for us to be forgiven for it. And that makes you see it differently. As verse 12 says, it trains us to renounce, to say no, to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives instead. Some of you will remember the uh, Aussie evangelist John Chapman, often known as Chapo, who died some years back. And he told the story of how he was in difficulty surfing one day, and he felt a hand grab him, and it was a lifeguard towing him back to shore. And Chapo thanked him, Uh, did a bit more sunbathing and then decided to go back in. And he was just walking down the beach where he felt a hand grab him again and he turned round to find that it was the same lifeguard who'd fished him out earlier. And the lifeguard said, where are you going, mate? And Chapo said, I thought I'd go back in. And the lifeguard said, not today. I didn't save you just for you to go and be stupid again. And that's how saving grace trains us in the face of our ongoing sinfulness and temptations. It says, look what I did for you on the cross. Think where you'd be if I hadn't done that. And so don't go and be stupid again. But of course, we are stupid again every day. We still sin. We're still horribly inconsistent. But if you're a Christian, you know what it is to be trained by grace, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, at least to aim for that, albeit imperfectly. Verse 13 then says that saving grace also trains us to wait 
for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So in verse 11, we had Jesus first appearing when he left the glory of heaven to become human. And in verse 13, we have Jesus' second appearing in his full glory when everyone will finally see, happily or unhappily, that he really was and is our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. So verse 13 is about Jesus' second coming at the end of time. And saving grace also trains us to wait for that. And the word means wait expectantly, wait eagerly. It's the I can't wait for Christmas kind of waiting of, of the child on Christmas Eve. It's the can't wait to be married of the engaged couple. And Christians should be like that about what verse 13 calls our blessed hope, which just means all the blessings that we will finally experience beyond this life of being out of this world with all its sin and suffering and death and of being with God, finally able to see him and unable to doubt him or sin against him ever again. And saving grace trains us to look forward to that because it not only makes us want to be forgiven our sin, but makes us want to be shot of our sin. So the incarnation makes us look differently at the world makes us live differently from the world. Thirdly, the incarnation makes us live differently for the world, for its sake. So verse 13 ends with the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But then Paul comes back to the incarnation again. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, that's on the cross, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now imagine you were asked to complete the sentence, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to, what would you say? I guess many of us would say to forgive us our sins. And that's right. But forgiveness, of course, is a means to an end. And the end is a restored relationship with Jesus where we are living for him as we should have been all along. And that's what verse 14 is about. It says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And that word redeem, it comes from the world of slaves and masters where if you had wanted a slave, you paid the price to his current master and he became yours. That's what it meant to redeem. And one illustration of that is Abraham Lincoln. The story goes that on one occasion to show his opposition to the slave trade, Lincoln went to a slave market to buy a slave and set her free. And the slave recognized him and misunderstanding what was going on, she spat at him for what she thought was his hypocrisy. He then simply said, you are free to go and walked away. And a moment later, she'd pulled him to a halt and said, sir, if I am free, then I want to serve the one who set me free. And apparently she did into her old age. And if you know Jesus redeemed you on the cross, that he paid that inconceivable price for your forgiveness, you'll be saying the same. Lord Jesus, if I am free, free from judgment, free to relate to you, knowing that I'm forgiven and loved and accepted, then I want to serve the one 
who set me free. In which case, Jesus' answer, paraphrasing verse 14, is this. Then I want you to live differently from those who don't know me and to do such good in this world that it attracts them to me. Now, you may have noticed at the start that verse 11 begins with the word for. So we've been reading the motivation for what becomes what comes before verse 11. So just listen to verses 9 and 10, where Paul says Christian slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not but showing all good faith so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. So he's saying, Christian slaves, I want you to live so that you attract your masters to the Lord Jesus. And earlier in chapter two, he said similar things to all Christians. He said at work or in your homes or in your neighborhood or in your church family or in wider society, I want you to live in such a way that you attract people to the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, four. And the motivation is everything we've seen this morning about the incarnation, because the incarnation makes us look differently at the world, makes us live differently from the world and live differently for the world to attract more people to Jesus. And scared as we often are to be different, to be openly and radically Christian, that is the only way that we will do the world good and attract more people to Jesus. So whatever your smaller ambitions, will you make that your overriding ambition for 2021? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for reminding us at the start of this year that you became incarnate and died to make us a people for your own possession. Please forgive us for so often thinking and living as if we still belong to ourselves and as if our, and, and as if our lesser ambitions were all that mattered. And please continue to teach us how to live out the overriding ambition of making you known to others in all the relationships and contexts of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.